The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in January 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. And today we do say welcome to Richard Easton, the actor. Hi, Richard. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Nice to have you. Let me just run through some of your more recent credits in a Broadway career that goes back, I hate to say, about half a century, back into 1957 with your first appearance, which was in The Country Wife, and uh, most recently in The Coast of Utopia, the trilogy uh, written by Tom Stoppard, also at Lincoln Center Theater, The Rivals, Henry IV, where you played the title character the invention of love for which you won the Tony Award for your acting, and recently a revival of Noises Off, currently starring in a play called New Jerusalem, written by David Ives, which is playing at Classic Stage Company down in Lower Manhattan, an off-Broadway show, which has a very interesting theme. You play the chief rabbi of Amsterdam in 1656, and Spinoza is basically on trial. Yes, yes. It's a a fascinating play, but... uh uh, I knew the name Spinoza, and I knew that he was a philosopher or something, but like everybody else, I knew nothing at all about him. And uh, it's very interesting. It's a uh, courtroom drama. It's a whatever. But it's great fun to do. But it's not only a drama it's set. Basically, it's because Spinoza is, uh, has a philosophy which goes against Jewish uh, tradition, Jewish, uh, Jewish philosophy. Well, everybody's philosophy. Yeah, everybody's really. in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, was, he was a few years ahead of his time, shall we say. Yes. And he is in the process of being excommunicated. Yes. And he had, uh, after he died, he became a noted philosopher. In, in his day, I don't know if they recognized his genius. He was just different, had different ideas and fit into the mainstream. I think they certainly did recognize that. The trouble with that is, I mean, this this is a wonderful play to act. I mean, it's very good. It's very extremely literate, beautiful dialogue, full of jokes. And um, th- they do, <laughs> at that theater, they're very keen on talkbacks. And the audience is very keen on them, too. And they have a regular audience that comes to the theater and likes to stay afterwards and ask questions about it. And they say, they always say, well, please, the actors, will you please come if you will? And I always say, no, I won't, because I know that the talkback is going to be about Spinoza, what actually happened. And I know that what actually happened is not what happens, quite what happens in the play. And so I, I say it will, it will simply interfere with my process of the little sort of road map I have in my head every night to see myself through my performance in the play. Well, also, according to notes that, uh, that uh, are handed out at the theater, nothing is really known too much about Spinoza the man, except that he was a philosopher, was excommunicated. So David Ives really had to kind of not quite make up, but kind of well, invent what, 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 what might have happened that day at, at the trial. Yes, when he was that's not what he's writing. He's writing, to me, he's writing a wonderful drama uh-huh. about the clash of a mentor and his mentated <laughs> uh, who suddenly uh, outgrows his teacher and the problem that the teacher has of having to destroy him, basically. Well, in saying that, you hint at what you just said. You said that the talkback doesn't, uh, don't allow you to talk about your process. Is that your way into the play, yes. looking for the human relationship rather than the philosophical underpinnings that John's been outlining? Yes, I always believe I'm the old-fashioned one that the actor is the is the medium of the theater. The playwright is the artist, and the actor is the medium. And so, I am I am conveying the playwright's play to the audience through myself. And uh, in disguise as as Motera, the the rabbi. So how do you approach coming into a play like this? Certainly there is all of this philosophy, there is all of this history, there is all of this cultural issues, Amsterdam in the 1600s, you know. But is it really for you about simply what is on those pages and how you play it? Yes. You're not a researcher? Not in that sense. Well, I mean, to be interesting, yes, and to know... Uh, what clothes they were wearing, and therefore how that... I mean, if it interested the playwright, which in this case, of course, it does, because David is a great researcher. And uh, so that it's important to know what was going on and, and, and who, you, who you are, who your character is. But essentially, I've got to make sure that I get all the jokes, that the audience laughs when they're supposed to, that you know, and cries when they're supposed to, and not... Uh, give them a history lesson, hmm. basically. But I think that's the same with any any play one does. And as we're talking about David, we should note for, for those who 
aren't as familiar with David, David's best known for his comic one acts and for his work at writing, rewriting the books of many musicals for the Encore series here <laughs> in New York. This is, to most people, quite a change of pace for him. Well, is he dead, too? I mean, and, of course, is he dead yeah. where he's taken, taken the Mark Twain yeah. material? But this is a wholly original piece. Um, how much was David working on the play once you were into rehearsal, or are you performing the play well, simply again, as David see, wrote it, it? It actually is a different process from what you're describing. Hmm. It isn't like somebody making a history film. He's writing a play. Right. He's an artist, and he's writing a play. And so his changes had to do with, um, you know, a wrong word or a, a, a beat too early or a beat too soon, or putting in a little something to delay it. But it's entirely about the art of the play itself. And you could watch the play without knowing anything about or knowing, indeed, that there was somebody called Spinoza and and still get the kick that I think... I mean, this is personal, of course, but I mean, I think that's what he's right. I think it's a wonderful play for that reason, that it's a play like Hamlet or Lear or Henry IV or, or <laughs> The Invention of Love, any of those. I mean, one isn't being a houseman in The Invention of Love it's nice to know about him and to know what the author knew about him in terms of the, the dryness and the, and the softness of, of his strange mind. And all that's interesting, but not the events of the play. Well, you've jumped us right to something I was going to ask later. Tom Stoppard was our guest last week and talked about wanting to debunk this idea that you have to read up before going oh, to a Stoppard yes. I mean, play. So, it was criminal what they had, what they did over the uh, Utopia. It was absolute nonsense. And people were constantly saying, oh, I don't know that I'll be... And I said, oh, for heaven's sake. I mean, it's nothing. I mean... Oh, it just enrages me and, and all that. And the, the unfortunate publicity about it. And people were sort of thought, oh, dear, this is very... But Tom, I mean, is he started life as a journalist. He's totally a communicator and uh, and a passer-on of stuff. And, and <clears throat> sorry, and he's um, uh, just... I did uh, also the thing that he wrote with... with um, um, Andre Previn. Every good boy, Every deserves, good boy favor. deserves favor, and that again. I mean, it's sort of historically based and Middle European based, but not. I mean, nothing to do with what you don't need to know anything to to enjoy the play. And so, from the inside, these plays that we all hear of as plays of intellect, and frankly, I read. Uh, pieces in the paper that even compared New Jerusalem to Stoppard. There are other plays. It seems now whenever there's a play... But that's because Isherwood loathes brainy plays. He thinks that the theater is not the place for an idea. And so he always faults Stoppard for that. And But to you, whatever the ideas may be, it's about playing the people. Yes, because one knows brainy people. I mean, one meets them. And they're hell to live with, I'm sure, but they're very nice to meet at a party. And uh, or in the theater, I think. So you don't go to the talkbacks, but do you have a sense through the course of performing the show of the audience? Do they need to come to grips with it? Do they just go with the flow? How, how did it? Oh no, I think I, I'm not knocking them. I mean, mm -hmm. the purpose for them is right. fine. I mean, if it interests them, if they're suddenly interested in the people, by all means, I mean, read or go go there. It's also I'm just I'm I'm being a kind of classy refusal to because it's also boring <laughs> to hear the people you despise <laughs> to saying oh yes well I do this and that way and I do that that way it's really just mostly that I don't want to I don't want to endure that does makeup hurt hmm. how do you remember all those lines particularly at an age <laughs> when I'm beginning not to <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the classic stage company is a very intimate theater. It's, it's U-shaped, so the audience sits on three sides, like yes. quite theater in the round. Yes. What sort of um, feelings do you get from the audience as they're watching the show? In other words, do you, as an actor, do you sense that the audience is getting it, that they're appreciating what is being being performed? Yes, I think you, I'm, I'm talking like a technician all the time. Uh -huh. But I, I, I was there the first year of Stratford, Ontario, uh -huh. And Guthrie invented that modern uh, shape. <clears throat> and he pointed out that technically, you the, the mistake is to deliver, to, to portion it all out so that you do 
some of it to the right for those people and some of it to the left for those people and some of it. And Guthrie said, no, you must do all of it for all of them all the time, which means that you have to keep moving all the time, that you must arrange, you must point your feet away from the direction of the person you're talking to so that you're talking to them like that, and whenever you, nobody stares at everybody all the time when they're talking to them. When you look away from the person you're talking to, you look at the moon, you look at the sun, you are spreading your face and your voice throughout the, the entire audience so that you feel... I don't, I don't want those people who, who are behind my shoulder to feel that they are behind my shoulder all the time. And so my chief, again, in, interest is technically in rehearsal. How do I move this so that I don't uh, hide from the audience because I wish to uh, engage them and I wish to let them see me. It's particularly, it's also true of acting that it's very important, the great actors always have secrets, that there's always a kind of necessity for the audience to lean forward a bit because there's a secret there and you don't quite know what it is. And it's planned and it's put there for this purpose. But equally, if you're going to have a secret, you want to make sure that you're, you're not invisible. <laughs> that they want, you want the audience to be seeing you have your secret and allow them to work out what it is, of course. But, uh... Well, to go from the technical to the personal with you, you've just said you were in the company the first year of Stratford, Ontario. You were from Canada originally. How did you get into acting and indeed into the first company in what is one of the major theater centers in the world? Well, my beginning was entirely luck, really, basically, and uh, because I started <coughs> in Montreal and I was going to be uh, a train driver. I was going to be a painter, basically, and I studied at the Montreal Art Gallery. There. I gave lessons on Saturday mornings and I went in, and the following Saturday was to be stained glass windows. So we were going to study stained glass windows, and it, three of you on each window. There would be triptych, and there would be three of you working on these. And I thought, three of us working? I don't want to work with two other people, <laughs> certainly not these people. So I didn't go. And I stayed at home, and I heard instead a broadcast of a, called Calling All Children, which was uh, children's stories for children by children, done by a school for children, acting school for children. And they had the the, the test. I mean, if, 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 I, wa I want to be an actor because in 50 words or less and you get a prize is, is, a, is, is a, a, a course at the school. So I said, well, I can write that letter. And so I wrote a letter about why I wanted to be an actor, though I didn't. And, of course, one, because I was a boy, because most of them were girls, of course, at that time. This and is 40, 40, whatever it was, eight, nine, mm -hmm. seven. Uh -huh. So anyway, I got that thing, and I went in, and because I'd sung too long as a boy soprano, I had a husk in my voice. I have one now, but that's because I've got a cold. But uh, uh, I had a husky voice, so I got all the good parts on the radio. I played Captain Hook and Midas and all that, so I learned to act. And then the uh, and I was around the studios on Saturday, so the pros started to say, oh, uh, we've got a boy sick. Uh, can you come in and do a soap? So I started to earn money when I was 16, 17. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I did a lot. The very big amateur in Montreal, uh, the Montreal Repertory Theater was an amateur, non-paid. The actors made money only on the radio. But Christopher Plummer and uh, uh, Bill Shatner, John Collicott, all, you know, all these people were there. And we were all acting together all the time. And when I was 14, I played in summer stock with Chris Plummer in The Rivals. I was Bob Akers and he was Falkland. <laughs> and, and, you know, that sort of thing. So when I finished high school, I was less and less interested in school. And when I got to the end of high school, the man who was the head of the Protestant school board in Montreal said, if you take grade 12, which you could then, and instead of going straight to university, if you take grade 12, I'll put on Hamlet for you. Oh, I said, all right, <laughs> excellent. So he did. And so I took I meant going into, into the center of Montreal every day to Montreal High School to do this Hamlet. And uh, we started rehearsing and all that. And I totally lost interest in school at this point. And so I was heading away, goodbye-bye, Mom, and going onto the train and going into town and going straight to the MRT and painting sets. 
and around the theater. And then I would go uh, come after school to rehearse. And finally, the principal called me in and said, this is an outrage. I can't fire you because we're spending too much money on this production. But will you promise me that I will never see you again after... The, the last performance of Hamlet. And I said, yes, I can, sir. I can promise you that, absolutely. So that was fine. So everybody was happy. So then I quit. And then I went to Ottawa and um, uh, went to the profession, became a professional stage actor. It weekly rap, 33 weeks of weekly rap. Hmm. And that I learned to act, too. But I'm saying, anyway, the answer to this question was, when Tony Guthrie came, he interviewed everybody, including me, and didn't choose me. And uh, Herbert Whittaker, who was then the critic of the Globe and Mail, said to him, apparently, he said, this cannot be right. He's done more Shakespeare than anybody you've met. He's the only Canadian actor who's played Hamlet. <laughs> and uh, what, what are you doing? And then Tony said, oh, well, I mean, maybe a mistake. Uh, anyway, he can have first refusal. So as it happened, my roommate in Toronto, where we were doing things, received the offer... And said, oh, that's not really good enough for me. And, and I said, well, it's good enough for me. And I took it and went. And that first season, were they were they in a tent originally? Yes. Oh, no, it, it wasn't a tent like that. Mm -hmm. It was a very grand tent. Mm -hmm. It was no. done by a really wonderful firm uh, who did circuses and things. But, again, it was Guthrie, the genius Guthrie, who said, do not build a theater until you find out whether you've got a theater here. Have a tent, so they built a, the, the 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 shell like like a, a Greek theater of cement and all that, and they just put a tent on top of it, and they had that for four or five years, hmm. and uh, f four years. I was the first year and the last year of the tent because I got a uh, uh, Guthrie and Guinness. Alec Guinness was the star, gave a scholarship to two likely young lads to go to England, and which I was one. And uh, Timothy Findlay was a, turned out to be a novelist, really, later, a very good Canadian novelist. Anyway, we went, and we had voice lessons at the Central School, and we got tenant, HM tenant contracts. And I ended up two years, for two years, and the theory was you'd do two years there and then go back home. And the, 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 after the first year, I worked for Peter Brook in a boulevard comedy that lasted for nine months. And then they gave me to Stratford, where I played Edgar to John Gielgud's last Lear and Claudio and Much Ado with him and, and Peggy Ashcroft. So it was an astounding kind of luck and this this mistake which began with me not turning up to the art gallery in Montreal. <laughs> Suddenly, there I was playing with the greatest actor of my time in Noguchi's production of King Lear. Uh, anyway, then I went back and then Houseman brought me to the States to replace another Canadian actor, Donald Harron. And you're referring to John Houseman? John Houseman, yes. He was a great mentor and friend of mine, so, and particularly his wife, too. So you had <clears throat> a couple of years at Stratford, the interim in England. How quickly did was it that, that Houseman took, picked you up well, to come to New York? Well, he'd seen me in England, of course, mm -hmm. in the London productions, and he knew of me, and he needed to replace Don Harron. And why, why, who better than a Canadian, another Canadian actor? So I came down and, re and we did at the Phoenix in, at Second Avenue, uh, the re repeats of the Measure for Measure and the Shrew with Nina Foch, who I saw a month ago in, in L.A., looking wonderful, uh, in 57. And then we did the, that summer season, and then I did three subsequent summer seasons there, hmm. meeting Ellis Rabb and Nicholas Martin and all those people. Hmm. And uh, Lois Nettleton is just dead. And and in that era, you were doing Broadway work, but bouncing between Broadway, and you spent a lot of time. You you went to another Stratford, Stratford, Connecticut. Yes, that, and and that was relatively early in the establishment of Stratford, Connecticut, as well. Well, as, it was very early in John Houseman's establishment. It was fifty seven, mm -hmm. fifty seven, fifty eight, and fifty nine when he was fired, and so we all left and formed APA instead. Yes. Well. You mentioned APA. <laughs> We've had several guests in recent months who've talked about APA, Jack yeah. O'Brien and Francis Sternhagen. But but tell us a bit of, of your experience well, with that That was company. because Ellis Rabb and I would be, became the best of possible friends. And we were constantly together, constantly talking about the theater and doing all that. And then when he married Rosemary, then the three of us were constantly talking about the theater and saying, essentially, um, why do actors talk about the theater all the time but do nothing about it 
Why don't they do stuff? And so we thought, well, why don't we do stuff? And so we wrote to all everybody we knew, which was everybody in those days. I mean, there were about 40 classical actors in New York, and they were in everything. And so we met with one of our interested people was uh, Bob Gold, who, who owned the or ran the Sullivan Street Playhouse. And so we used to have meetings there, and we would have readings, and we would people would do scenes, and we would, we would just sort of, you know, talk. And then I was asked to play Petruchio in The Shrew in Bermuda. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't want to play Petruchio. I, I, I'm a Tranio more than a Petruchio. Uh, but in any case, but what about, what I could do is I could bring a repertory of plays. And so Ellis said, yes, well, this is what we'll do. And we, we decided we would, they paid us $30,000, and we went down with a company, rehearsed, and did a six-week season of rep of The Seagull of Chekhov, Man and Superman, the whole of Man and Superman, cut down, but, but the, all of it, including the Hellseed, and a musical of The Affairs of Anatole written by, arranged by Tom Jones with music by Offenbach for an Austrian <laughs> play. Anyway, so uh, that's what we did. And we went down there and was hugely successful. And we did their, for them their production of The Shrew, in which I did play Tranio. And uh, Tom, uh, Paul Sparrow played Trucio much more suitably. And, uh, and then we, there was suddenly interest, so we went to Bucks County. We came back to, to the mainland and went around Metonic, Rhode Island, uh, uh, Several, about five or six. Then the McCarter opened, so they asked us to open the, the new theater in Princeton. So we we did a season, an autumn season of six uh, comedies, including what we'd done in, in the summer, and we included the importance of being earnest with Franny Sternhagen and Ellis and Rosemary. Oh, Franny and Rosemary were so wonderful, and those, those girls. They were, Rosemary Harris. We were all, yes. Yeah. We were all right, but, but they were wonderful. And uh, they, um, anyway, we did those plays. And then they said, oh, and what about the spring? Would you come and do five Shakespeare's in you know, five weeks? <laughs> sure, we said. So we did Hamlet and Lear and The Dream and As You Like It and uh, Twelfth Night. Sounds like it, very... It's insane. I then left. I said, um, I'm sorry, this has been a wonderful year, and you're all wonderful, and I love you all my life, but I'm going back to England to act. <laughs> and I was fascinated to see that, uh, I guess the time's about right, you ended up in England playing Nick in Virginia Woolf, well, which yes, is certainly not a classical role at that time. Oh, no, well, I, no, I had done other things than classical. <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, no, I, but it wasn't but just, just interesting that, that you, you were in that. Well, I had seen it, of course, when I was in New York doing all these other plays during the, the uh, Stratford years um, on Broadway, and, and so I knew Edward very well and all that, and when I was here with School for Scandal from England with, with Gilgood and Richardson and all that. We, they did the Actors Fund benefit of, of Virginia Woolf on the Sunday, and I went, of course, to that and saw them there. And it was breathtaking, of course, performance. It was simply wonderful. But they said then, they said, would you, would you, would you play it in London when we do it? And I said, well, I mean, surely George is going to do it in London. He said, no, he doesn't want to. And I said, well, you, would I? of course I will. So... Uh, uh, later, I, we, I went back to England. It was working away, and then when they did it, I came to New York and rehearsed with Uta and Arthur and and all that, and then took it back and opened it there. And then when they, in those days, they could only do three months. They only wanted to do three months, really, basically. But anyway, but they left after three months and replaced by Connie Cummings, who was wonderful in the part, and went on and played. I think fourteen, fifteen months eventually. <laughs> Well, it sounds like a very exciting time in your life. You were probably in your, I'm guessing, mid-20s at this point. Like yes, a, this was, what, 60s? So, yes, I was, yeah. Like, like late, late 50s, or early 60s, was when this was going yes. on? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. was coming up to 30. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing. Man, you've all been like that. I've been so lucky. Boy, I've been. Mm. Well, you made your Broadway debut in 1957 in The Country Wife. Is that, is, does that sound I guess right? that, because The Phoenix didn't count. Yes, that was... Yeah, Phoenix uh, was off Broadway. Yes. Yeah. That was with uh, with Julie Harris, and, yeah. and uh, that was the most wonderful thing. It was, it was came for me, and I replaced Alan Bates in a production that had been done in England. 
and uh, it was it was uh, Ernest Thesiger and Pamela Brown. Pamela Brown was playing Lady Thing, and he was playing. And uh, Ernest, I don't know whether you remember Ernest, but he's immensely camp actor. He was said to wear pearls. He's in some of the, wasn't he in some of the Frankenstein films? Do oh, I yes, remember he was, that? He was very. He was the famous story of somebody meeting on the street saying, "Excuse me, weren't you Ernest Thesiger?" <laughs> and, uh, but he had a wonderful line. It was all handkerchiefs and stuff, and he had wonderful line. You libidinous lady, he said to his wife, played by Pamela Brown. And as he said, libidinous lady, his teeth fell out <laughs> into his hand. And he put them back. And everybody on the stage, of course, was absolutely paralyzed with laughter, except <laughs> Julie, who hadn't seen it or wouldn't have noticed anyway, really. And she managed to hold hold the place together. But the rest of us were just, oh, God. <laughs> Pamela Brown was wonderful. She, I did a television with her of, of um, a Shaw play. No, a, a Barry play. Anyway, anyway, on television. And we uh, were, were doing this scene, and she... Uh, we kept doing retakes, and she had a scene, and she had a lot of lines, and she messed up a couple, and uh, she uh, finally the, we did a, a scene which we thought was fine and not some technical. We have to do it again. So I said to her, "I'm sorry, Pam, we've got to do it again." And she said, "Oh no, nonsense! They're lucky to have us under any circumstances." <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, that's a good attitude for an old actor. I'm trying to come to it myself. <laughs> As you talk about this absolute wealth of shows that you were in, and it seems like they just came pell-mell one after another, there's a quote that I read from you online saying, I've never done anything for any other reason than I wanted to do the thing itself. I never had to do anything as a career move. Yes. Was it truly just these... Sheer In some luck. cases, you created opportunities with APA by forming a oh, company. Oh, yes. Oh, no, no, indeed. And, and, and I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't turn anything down just because it's a career move. But, no, I've never had to. I mean, either from ego. Because I, I, I don't – I mean, it's like I keep saying to people, I don't want to play King Lear. I'm a Gloucester. I don't need to play – I played Hamlet a lot because I was a Hamlet. But, but not – I don't need to be the lead in that sense. I'm not, I don't have that ego. It's why, although I do films, I've just done a film with Sam Mendes, but and but I don't really like them because I don't have the ego for it. I don't. I need to be involved. I need to. I'm a craftsman, not a not an artist, and and uh, I want to get my teeth into things. And also, I've never really needed much money. Uh, I mean, I I learned to. I, I was on my own from the age of eighteen, and so I learned to cook and I learned to live on spaghetti and and. Uh, all that, and, and I've worked all the time. And so if you work all the time, you can do low-paying jobs. And now, of course, it's the cream of the f- pensions. Hmm. It's just <laughs> <laughs> But as you talk about this, it's interesting because you seem to be very honest with yourself about the roles you think you're right for. Yes, which is or the ones that interest me. That I'd be good. I, I, I'm also highly, highly conceited. I mean, I think I'm very, very good. <laughs> And and I need, I want to show that. So if the part doesn't show that, if I, I would play it in weekly rep, of course. I mean, if I was a member of the company, then of course I'd play that part. But I wouldn't do it just on its own because it wouldn't show me off. So <laughs> as someone who played Hamlet four times and has appeared in eleven productions, yes. What what was Hamlet for you? Well, Hamlet. I played Hamlet when I was uh, when I was eight when I was uh, eighteen, and I re- I remember distinctly thinking. What's the problem? I see no problem with this play. And all these books that have been written, I, I hadn't read any of them, but I knew that they had been written. And I thought, this is easy. And then I did it again at 19, when it became a little more difficult as a professional. It was the first Canadian, all-Canadian professional production of Hamlet ever. And then Ellis did a production for me in that Princeton season, which was wonderful. That was the best one. Well, but, you, you talk about certain roles, certain of the lead roles that you didn't see for yourself. Was that because of the role itself, or you didn't think you were suited for it for some reason? I mean, wh- wh- why would you turn down some roles and say, well, I don't want to be the lead character. I want to be one of the other characters. Well, it's wonderful to steal all the notices for Hamlet as the ghost. Uh-huh. <laughs> Better than, um, you know, be said, oh, yes, and also there was that. And, and I guess it was not quite as good as Jeremy Irons's Hamlet or whatever. And I'd rather do that. I'd rather uh-huh. be the best thing in it. 
Uh-huh. I don't think that's not entirely true, of course. But I mean, but I would have more fun doing that. So, have you kind of followed that philosophy throughout your career? Yes, I mean, and I've and I've been able. I mean, what the, I meant in the quote was that I never had to do crap because I had to do something. I mean, I would, I would, I would be, I was able to because I had no responsibilities at all. I I could easily just go off to San Diego and do a play there, or go to anywhere. I'm in Princeton, and and I didn't have to earn a living to support people in school or or you know all that. So, well, are, are, are there roles that you've turned down that in hindsight you wish you had taken and say, why did I turn that one down? No. That nothing's gotten away from you? No. Well, I mean, I'm sure things have. No, I don't, I don't mean that necessarily. Uh-huh. But, no, but no, I've... I've uh, and I've been very, very lucky, as I say. I mean, I, I, I've turned down jobs and another job has turned up. <laughs> which, which for an actor is probably highly unusual, certainly with a career that's as, been as long as yours. Yes. Yes, but men, you see, we we have we're so lucky. The girls don't have this this marvelous thing. An old man can work all the time, <laughs> and all the ladies of my age, are, you know, have difficulties. Mm. As we look through the lists we were able to come up with of your career, and I'm sure that it's missing countless shows. I do notice amidst all a lot of a classical work, certainly some contemporary plays. I only spotted one musical. Oh, there were a lot in England. Ah. I did all the musicals in England. But over there. I did Oliver for a year, played Fagin, the first uh, out of London tour. And I did um, My My Lady Fair, and I did The Sound of Mucus, and and, (laughs) and Salad Days in New York. Pajama Game popped Pajama Game, I did that. Mm -hmm. But but mostly that work was in England. There You With the Stars in Your Eyes, all that. Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I did a lot of those, and uh, I sang quite a lot. I mean, I, uh, I, when I was in England, I did a musical version of She Stoops to Conquer called Oh, Marry Me with a kind of well-known baritone, comic baritone in England, who uh, we did it in Windsor. And uh, he said to me, he said, you know, you sing well enough to sing properly. <laughs> and I said, yes. And he said, I want you to come and see my, my teacher. So, as it happened, his teacher lived across the Kensington High Street from me. So, I went and auditioned for him. He said, oh, yes, wonderful. And so, we he was a mad Italian kind of opera singer. So, he made me sing opera. And I used to go, and I would come in just at the end of a soprano's lesson and sing duets with her. And then I'd have my class, and then a bass would come in at the end of my class, and we'd sing all, all this from Simon Bocanegra, all these the, the duets from Simon <laughs> Bocanegra. But it was wonderful. I, I did that for about five years. Hmm. Well, was, was that a conscious thing, doing musicals just in England, not in this country? Did, did you want to do musicals here? Oh, yes. But it just didn't happen? It, didn't, it never happened. As you realize, I, I don't go looking. Uh-huh. But, but certainly Salad Days we did in Canada and, and brought down here. But it sounds like so many parts have come to you, and you say you don't go looking. You don't say, boy, there's a role I want to play and go look for it? No. Really? Never? Not Well, I don't know about never. Uh-huh. I'm not on principle. Uh-huh. I mean, it just... I I mean, people who, who are irritated by me say, well, you're working all the time. <laughs> and it's probably true. I, when I'm working, I'm not looking for the next job. And that's not necessarily a bad thing to be working all the time. No, now, is yeah, it? I don't think so. I don't think so. And neither do they, really. <laughs> <laughs> Again, as we look at all of this work, uh, there was a period in the mid-'80s when you were at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Oh, God, the- Yes. It sounds like maybe it's a bad question, oh, but no. I'm curious to, to hear. And that was in the area you became friendly with Kenneth Branagh. Yes, indeed. Period. Yes. Can you just tell we, us about, about was the wonderful. RSC at that time? Well, the, the, the problem with, at that time was the time between between regimes when Trevor Nunn had left, but hadn't quite left. He was still sort of vaguely wandering around. But it was there was nobody at the head of it except Terry Hand sort of took over. And it was full of really, other than um, Adrian Noble, who was a wonderful director. The directors were really not very good then at that period. And uh, the company was very fragmented. I mean, uh, Kenny's very funny about it in his book, Beginnings or whatever it's called. He says how vile it was. And, (coughs) excuse me, we, um, no, I didn't like the work. I mean, I thought it was 
crap, really, basically. Uh-huh. Well, it's it's the old sort of... It's like the wonderful thing about the Metropolitan Opera this year, suddenly, they're getting stage directors in to do the operas, and they're wonderful. I mean, it's marvellous. Jacks, Tritico, and the... And the, and the uh, Lucia and all that. Well, there, and RSC was all about opera directors, basically, who did pictures, who made a kind of... You had a set that had nothing to do with anything that you were trying to do, except it reflected some book they'd read in school. It's all the... You know, it's the, it's the, the era of directors in England who were trained in university, as opposed to theatre people who were trained in the theatre. And it's the problem, of course, here now, is that a lot of the actors are university trained, trained by people who know nothing about what acting is. And so instead of, in my generation, we learned from actors. I mean, I learned not directly, because they would never discuss acting, Gielgud and Richardson and all those people, but they just showed you <laughs> what, what it is and what you do. And so that was um, really why I didn't like that. But Kenny... Is a wonderful, wonderful uh, creature, terrible giggler, like Judy Dench. He and Judy Dench together were, did a, <laughs> they did a television of uh, ghosts, and apparently on the dinner Which we scene, know is a laugh a minute uh, indeed. But in the in the dinner scene, they passed uh, the, the camera sort of panned past Amanda's and uh, Judy, and then Ken. And uh, the, the thing, as, as, a, as a, the uh, maid was passing uh, vegetables, <laughs> and they said to, uh, oh God, I can't remember his name. Anyway, Pastor Manders, uh, she said, "Would you would you like some potatoes, Pastor Manders?" And he said, "Yes, I'll have twelve, please." And went. The camera went on just in time to catch Judy hearing this and starting to giggle. To <laughs> go on to, to see no Ken. He was just on the floor with <laughs> laughing, and they could never get the shot because they kept, they would just laugh every time. They just laughed, but they were like that. He was when we did Hamlet at Elsinore. I was Claudius, and uh, he. We had to stop because it was rain. It was the day that the Queen of Denmark was there, and I. And, as and I we was, should be clear for people: you were actually performing Hamlet at Elsinore yes, Castle. Indeed. Yes, that was in, in his uh, Kenny's season. We did. A, a repertory of Hamlet and uh, whatever the others were, <laughs> Much Ado and uh, what and and uh, oh and, and, and uh, as you like it anyway yes <laughs> in the middle of this thing the Queen was there with her husband and I, I kept saying I'm playing the King of Denmark in front of the King of Denmark <laughs> and all that was going on and suddenly the rain just came pouring down just before the scene of the meeting the ghost <laughs> and uh, so we had to stop. And the girls all put plastic bags over their dresses because we were about to open in London and they didn't want to spoil the clothes. And as we came back, uh, start restarted and everybody, everybody was there. And Kenny came on and said, instead, instead of the air by Shrewdly, it's very cold. He said, the air by Shrewdly, it is very wet. <laughs> <laughs> got a tremendous round. But, but he's like that. He just doesn't care. <laughs> and uh, but he's lovely. I did a lot with him. I did many plays with him, and a couple of the films, and the films. Yes, indeed. What 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 period was this uh, in 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 your career? What 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 years? Was These this were the years were. It's all a great mishmash to me. It uh-huh. must have been uh, eighty four, eighty five, eighty six. I think that was uh, Elsinor was eighty seven. Uh-huh. But it seems like yesterday. It does seem like yesterday, <laughs> and also it's so it's so odd. I mean, I I don't think anybody quite understands, except those of us who are rootless, because being Canadian and having left home, one is always, and I've been very much a part of uh, here and in England. Indeed, I I I, I passed as English there, and uh, uh, but I I found that when when I did the after the terrible uh, Stratford time and it's a wonderful tour that we did with Kenny Branagh's company which was really divine it was a huge success and then making the film which was a glorious experience because of course there was so much energy around because there was no money and it was all done in six weeks mm. and no sets at all had to be done in close up you know breaking for all time you can't do Shakespeare on film because you can't do a close up 
and well, you can. <laughs> he did. <laughs> anyway, uh, we uh, um, after that, I suddenly looked around and I thought, I'm finished here. Actually, I don't want. To, I'm certainly not going back to the RSC. The RSC is now running the National. I don't want to do that. I, I've had a perfect two years. This is the end. So I'm. So I went to, to, to California to stay with Jack O'Brien, who, of course, was an old friend from the APA days. And I was. He said, "Oh, for heaven's sake, why don't you just come here and do Waiting for Godot?" All right, I said. And so, and all right, and then do Measure for Measure as well. And so I went back in the summer to do those two plays, and I came back at Christmas time to do Uncle Vanya, and then I came back the following summer. To, to meet um, Campbell Scott and, and Jennifer Van Dyke and, and, and Jonathan Walker, my dear, dear, dearest friends, and in the, that Hamlet production. And, you know, then I was commuting for about three years, and I suddenly said, well, this is it. I'm out here. So I packed up and moved to California and yeah. lived on the beach for seven years, eight years, teaching at the school, and they invented a, a job for me as mentor of the MFA program. Well, where was this? What school? In San Diego, mm -hmm. at the University of San Diego, mm -hmm. and uh, connected to the globe. And I, I kept saying, but surely people choose their own mentors. And I said, well, never mind. This is the meaning of it. So they guaranteed me, I don't know what, 38000 or something, 40000 a year. And plus I did four plays a year at the globe. Hmm. And it was wonderful. And I thought I'd retired. And then I suddenly thought, well, maybe I haven't. And so I came east to do, for Nicky Martin at Williamstown, to do the, uh, the Camino Real, which uh, was a huge success again. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe it's time. And so I came and got all these plays. And then suddenly <laughs> and began and quite a run. Began, and we should, we should really talk about some of those because did. it did seem to, to some, you know, who had not seen your work, suddenly you burst upon the New York scene. Now, obviously, you'd had this, this incredible career, you know, in the, in the 60s in particular in New York. But, but suddenly here was this mature actor yes. who suddenly was, <laughs> was turning up everywhere. And yes. we should point out there was roughly a 30-year gap between your appearances on Broadway. Yes. You had been doing yes. other work, but yes. Broadway appearances about yes. a 30-year gap yes. that Howard's yes. referring to. And particularly as in those days, of course, the Lyceum didn't count as Broadway for some reason. Mm -hmm. hmm. Whereas now it does. And now it does, yes. yes. And so does Lincoln Center. So what was, what was the first show back to New York? You cited Camino Real. It was I took over from Joel Gray. We didn't wear the same clothes, I may hasten to add. They had different costumes for us. Well, you're in, just a little bit bigger I'm than Joel Gray. I'm a little taller than him, <laughs> about twice as tall. Uh, in uh, Give Me Your Answer Do. The roundabout production. That the roundabout, which was done on then on Fourteenth Street or wherever it was, the twentieth. Gramercy on Twenty Third. Yeah. And that I got on my first day here, because I'd known, of course, uh, um, Kate Burton, and she you know, so that, and then I went on to did something else. And then it was, and then finally I got uh, Noises Off, which bought me my apartment. Hmm. But uh, you, you had done the invention of love before that. No, had you I? Had? Yes, yeah, I did. Yeah, yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. For which you won the Tony. Yes, which we can't for, can't forget. No, no, neither can I. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, two thousand one, <laughs> and you played A. E. Houseman uh, after he had just passed away. He was about to to embark for wherever he was going up or down <laughs> on the River Styx. Well, he was it? about to go down yeah, because he was down. In, in the river. He was in there. The river Styx, he yeah. wasn't necessarily going to stay there, but he was going to cross <laughs> the sea with Sharon. Yes, yes, pretending to be the. Bobby Sean Leonard is an old man. <laughs> well, Bobby Sean Leonard, Robert Sean Leonard, was the, the yeah. young A.E. Hasman, the poet. And also he, won a Tony. Right, as the best featured actor. And yes. he won his best actor. And uh, A.E. Hasman was the, the, the poet, late 19th century, early 20th yes. century poet. Yes. Yeah, yeah. How did you get that role? Uh... Jack, I suppose. It just came to you, in other well, words. Well, it, it didn't just come to me, because yeah. Jack... Knew my I had Jack, done a lot of plays for Jack. Jack O'Brien. Yeah, yes. Mm -hmm. And so I was, uh, and also I was the logical choice. I don't know who else would have done it. I mean, that was my sheer luck. The first time I w was eligible for a Tony happened to be the one year when there was no other part. Uh, up, really, basically. There was no Christopher Plummer, no, none of, nobody was doing one of those zonkers that always win. Mm. 
I was so lucky. <laughs> Timing is everything. Indeed. But also a little bit of ability, a little bit of performance ability. a great ability. deal of luck. <laughs> <laughs> Being modest. As we talk about this peripatetic career in so many different places and going where the work is, I'm wondering whether you experience working in theater differently in England, in New York in the 60s versus New York now. Are, is there a different feel to it, or is the continuum all the same? Uh, I think it's all the same, really, basically. I, I, I think, I think uh, I mean, as an old fogey talking, I mean, there are, few, there, there are fewer people who know how to act, I think, now. Uh, but there are more people who know how to direct. And, uh, but basically, I think that's really old fogey talk, hmm. basically. Yet, but also the, I mean, the other thing. I mean, I said to a friend of mine the other day, uh, I was talking about I, what's the problem about auditioning? For heaven's sake, people say, "Oh no, I don't audition." And I go, "I say, what's the problem? The acting is the easy part." And I suddenly caught a look of his face, and his face had gone kind of into shock. And I suddenly realized, oh, of course, that's true. I mean, for me, acting has always been easy, and for them, it isn't. It's, they make it difficult. I mean, children act. We have to relearn how to do it. I mean, when you think of the smallest person you know has an imaginary friend who's always exactly the same, size, shape, color, everything, and stays from years. Well, I mean, that's all we have to do, basically. And uh, so anyway, so it, it's always been easy to me. And I also, I was saying to Chris, and he didn't believe me, but I said that one of the wonderful things about growing up in Montreal in our period, because it was quite a lively period, uh, the, 40, the end of the 40s, just after the war, when there was a lot of activity, in, all amateur, but it was all very good activity. And we did plays, and we never wondered whether they were good in, in that sense. We were not ever competing with uh, the Broadway tour. I mean, we saw everything because Montreal was a touring city. And it wasn't that, but we never, it never occurred to us that it wasn't part of the same thing. And we weren't amateurs or in some way less good. And I think we weren't, too. I mean, but certainly that is the feeling. So that sort of calm confidence that is not about bluster and not about ego, basically, is is um, part of that. I think it's uh, it's easy. What's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, t you talk about acting being easy for you, at least. Yes. Uh, and audition. Do you still, at this point in your career, audition? Do you certainly, still read for parts? Yes. I mean, really? Fortunately, at this point in my career, I often don't have to. Uh huh. But, but, but certainly, yes. And of course, now, in the 50s, when I was here, the th actors, out of work actors, who were most actors, of course, as they always are, w went to acting lessons. They went to the studio or they went to acting lessons. Now, everybody does auditions for voiceovers. But it's exactly the same process. It's the thing that gets you out of bed on the day when you have nothing to do. You have to shave and you have to get ready and go. And you meet all your friends and you chat <laughs> and you don't get the job. But every now and then you do get the job. And it's very nice. But it's, it's, uh, it's that kind of strange life that we lead. And you refer to acting lessons. Have you ever taken acting lessons? Have you ever had Not any schooling? Not as such, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, 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 I did... As I say, I worked with Gilgood and Richardson, and I did three things with Uta, which was an acting lesson in itself. <laughs> and uh, and as I was curious, and and I watched a lot. And but no, I never had an actual acting class. Hmm. Interesting. Well, there was one morning that, that, at the RSC when d d lovely Trevor Nano, I love, but he did do this awful thing of pretending to be a, a weasel or a hedgehog or something in a, in a rehearsal, and he never did it again. Because <laughs> all that company just looked at him and said, oh, fancy. You spoke earlier about being a mentor to younger artists uh, and students out in uh, San Diego, and through many, much of what you're saying, you're talking about things that people should think about if they are actors. Are there bits of specific advice? Oh yes, and I became I become quite famous for this because in the in the cast of Utopia, some there were quite a few ex students of mine in that, and they were talking to 
somebody in Plimpton or somebody and saying, Richard, when he, when he left, he left us a, an advice to young actors packet. And she said, oh, what was it? I thought it was, it was wonderful. She said, so she came and said, what is this thing? So I dug it out and gave it to her. And she had copies made and it was printed. But it was things like, always be polite to the wardrobe because that's where all the talk is. Know that the stagehands backstage belongs to the stagehands, not to you. So be polite to them. Mm-hmm. Also, they keep the job. You're just here for this. They stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff like that, really, basically. Um, but it's practical work advice. Practical not, work advice. Not craft yes, and yes, skill. Yes. Mm-hmm. Be on time. Be early. Uh Stuff you know, mm-hmm. back downstage, foot back. Make sure you can be heard. Don't mumble. Don't drop words. Mm-hmm. Get the laughs. <laughs> you mentioned utopia, and certainly <laughs> you've done all of this work in so many places, and you've talked about repertory. I'm wondering what the experience was for you at that stage in your career of being in a company like that for an extended period. Well, is I've always done that, of course. I mean, that's the, I mean, summer stock. I mean, we all did. My generation, I mean, we all did summer summer stock, and most of us were there. I mean, I was painting sets. I just, I, I, I built lighting for. Uh, I remember Mama. I remember coffee cans, and I discovered that you could those old rheostats that had the wheel on the top of them. I, I, I discovered that if you plugged in upside down, you could make one light go up and one light go down, so long as you hurried through the. The, the 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 danger to the fuse part <laughs> when they were both at full. but uh you know and 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 so one was used to the idea that acting i, I don't see it as imp- i mean i sort of see it as impersonation but not uh i guess i do see it as impersonation that is different you you learn in rap that you don't have to give the whole of your being in each part, which you do in film, of course. You have to show your entire self. So the stars are the ones who are always exactly the same, in fact. But the but the director is in, makes it different. But in the theater, it's a wonderful experience to be not to have to show your whole bag of tricks each time. That you can be selective, you can do... And the, 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 a lot of the kids in Utopia had never done rap, for example. And a lot of them, I mean, the, the very, very good ones, but the joy that they experienced when we suddenly added the second play, particularly if they were playing different part. And they thought, oh, I get it. We'd, I don't have to do it all in the f- first play. I can do just the character. And then in the second play, I'll do just that character. And by the time we've done, added a third, people will say, "Oh, wow, you're so clever! You do all these different people." And one said, "Well, yes," and it makes it easier. And in a sense, Coast of Utopia was repertory because there's three different exactly, plays, with, yes. as you say, different and, actors uh, playing different and, parts. And super when we when, when did those wonderful marathons with all three in one day, and of course they were sensational because the first play, uh, eleven o'clock in the morning, packed, of course with people who were so proud to be there and so mm-hmm. pleased, and they'd got their power bars and their socks, and they'd, <laughs> you know, they'd done all that, and they were just so keen. And, and, and the, the first, I had the first line. Well, I had the first scene, basically. And they laughed at everything I said. It was wonderful. And the second play, they got a little tired because they wished they hadn't had that second glass of wine with lunch. Mm-hmm. But by the end, because there were no calls until the very end, mm. They went mad, which they never did really uh, normally. But they stood and cheered and carried on. It was so exciting for us. Now, for you as an actor, though, doing the three shows in the same day over close to a 12-hour period, was that, was that grueling for you? Was it exhilarating well, or a I combination? Had a wonderful first act, in uh-huh. the, the, fir- the first play. I was basically in the first act and the very last scene, wonderful part. And th- I did my work then. Second play, I had one scene... In the middle of the second half, uh-huh. and in the third play, I had just the first act, and so it was no difficulty. I think it was only really difficult for Brian O'Byrne, and he was at a terrible slog. I mean, he talked the whole time; he was wonderful. 
But he was the only person really who suffered from, because Ethan had the wonderful thing of, of uh, of getting into a fat suit with his teeth blacked out and playing the old hymn, which he so relished, and uh, that gave him <laughs> enormous <laughs> zip of energy for the end. And, and Billy wasn't even in it. Billy Crudup. <laughs> yes. Uh. <laughs> so, no, it was amazing that it was a wonderful experience. But yes, and rep is. I mean, for, as I think, for, the, for that reason, that it enables you to be technical without being technical. You, 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 you work out a performance that is native to that piece. And you don't have, you're not auditioning for other work with the, with the same performance. Are you ever sorry you didn't take that course on, uh, on uh, stained glass, <laughs> didn't finish that course? <laughs> no, never. <laughs> not ever, for one second. Have you ever been tempted to go back and take a course on it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> It is well known that you had some health challenges oh, please. during what a Utopia. Year. What a year. And I'm just, we're delighted, of course, that you're well and working, but does that in any way affect now roles you'll take on or where you'll work or how you'll no. work? No, I mean, it might affect offers that I get, but uh, no, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you do? I mean, I take the pills, I do the diet, except for the drink. Bit, <laughs> and uh, no, I. It was just a horrendous. Yeah, but I mean, it's been a horrendous kind of decade, almost this, because I mean, I, I had several sort of heart things before, stents and stuff, and going going in for for a, 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 a stress test and going straight to hospital and having stents done, and um, prostate cancer, we had that removed, and a wonderful having the cataracts done, and then the heart attack. <laughs> the, wonderful, the, the, the wonderful nurse who came with the ambulance, who, who did the, the, all that stuff. Uh, the uh, defibrillator? <laughs> well, who did the, yes, that thing that they do on television. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, but she came to see the play later on and came around afterwards, and I met her and said, thank you so much. And she said, well, you know, we, we thought we'd lost you. <laughs> I said, "Oh, thank you for telling me that." <laughs> well, for our for our audience, you you did collapse on stage yes, during said, during Coast Utopia. This, is my, this yeah. is my last word. I said, "Step, step, crash," hmm. like a tree in the forest. Hmm. And Plimpton had to say, "Is there a doctor in the house?" Wow! I said, "After is you kidding? In the Upper West Side of New York City, is there a doctor <laughs> in the house?" <laughs> <laughs> you were in the right place. Yes. It had to happen. If you're going to have a medical emergency, <laughs> that's exactly. the place. <laughs> Exactly. Well, and, uh, <laughs> and then, they, then uh, of course, went in hospital for that. Then I got the cancer. And so I had the chemo and, and, and uh, radiation for that. But that, again, I was so lucky that I was working because I used to go in every day at 8.30 for radiation. And uh, I would see m men of my age sort of sitting around in the, in the waiting room waiting with no book, nothing, nothing and just being ill. And I was there saying, come on, I've got a play to do tonight. Get out of here. <laughs> and I thought, well, that helped a lot. Well, we're ending on such a cheerful note. <laughs> yes, well, I think it, this, this can happen to all of us. Let's remind our audience that you are currently in New Jerusalem, the David Ives off-Broadway show. Any uh, future plans? You're just waiting for things to come oh, to you I, now. I, I, I am, even for me, I'm in a grotesque position. I'm now going to do the... First play in the park, the Hamlet in the park. Ah. I'm giving my Polonius and hopefully my grave digger, but I'm not sure about that. And then I go to Williamstown to do, uh, uh, I, want, I always want to say loot, but it isn't. It's home with Paxton Whitehead and Franny Sternhagen and, and uh, Dana Ivey, and directed by Joe Hardy. So it's all old people unite, really, basically. And then I do, uh, for Sam Mendes, I do the. Winter's Tale and the Cherry Orchard that goes to, uh, rehearses here and then goes to with, with Simon Russell Beale and Sinead Cusack and me and I, I think that's all so far but then we do we do BAM till March and then we go to Japan and then Europe and then London the old Vic in London until next so I'm working until August 09 wow <laughs> <laughs> health permitting 
<laughs> let's, let's hope so. Yes. Richard, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.